Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the War Memorial Opera House and the San Francisco Ballet Meet the Artist program. I'm Cheryl Osola, a writer for San Francisco Ballet and editor-in-chief of Dance Studio Life magazine. And uh, on behalf of the San Francisco Center for Dance Education, I'd like to thank you for coming out on this beautiful afternoon, Sunday, March 24th, 2013. Um, I'd also um, like to thank the uh, online listeners. Many of our podcasts are available on our website, sfballet.org. So you can check out any that you missed out on or any that you might want to hear again. And while you're there, uh, do take a look around because there's lots of interesting stuff. Photos, videos, the company's blog, Open Studio 455, and many other things, so please take a look. The uh, Center for Dance Education uh, produces the Meet the Artist program, and it also produces other events uh, that help you learn about the ballet world. One of those is the Point of View series, and uh, our guest today, dance historian Tim Scholl, will be talking on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, for the Point of View lecture, and that is at 6 p.m. in the green room of the Veterans Building. So you'll have another chance to listen to him. And uh, I would now like you to welcome dance historian Tim Scholl. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Scholl is here as an adjunct to our Onegin performances this season. Um, I'm sure some of you saw it last year, right? Yes, fantastic. So we are lucky to have him here lecturing. I'm afraid everything else he's here to do is sold out, but you can still get into that Wednesday event, and he will be talking about Onegin at that one. So once upon a time, Tim Scholl was a kid in South Dakota who subsisted on a diet of PBS specials about the dances of George Balanchine and Paul Taylor. Then he went on to earn a BA from Vanderbilt and a PhD from Yale, and now he's a well-known specialist in 19th and 20th century ballet. He's written about dance for the New York Times, newspapers in Moscow and Stockholm, and for program books for such companies as New York City Ballet, La Scala, the Royal Opera House in London, Paris Opera, and the Hamburg Ballet. He teaches Russian and comparative literature at Oberlin College, and he is a docent in the theater research department of Helsinki University, where he previously was a Fulbright teaching and research fellow. Dr. Scholl has written two books, From Petipa to Balanchine, Classical Revival and the Modernization of Ballet, and Sleeping Beauty, A Legend in Progress, and that was named an outstanding academic title in 2005 by the academic book review magazine, Choice. And now he's working on a history of Soviet ballet. So here you are, this expert in Russian literature and ballet, and we're talking about a ballet by a South African who lived in London and Stuttgart. But, at least to the American eye, it really comes across as Russian. It's got a Russian story, it's got Russian music, and it just feels that way. But is it? 
Well, it's interesting. I was here last night with a, uh, another Russian specialist on Pushkin who teaches at UC Davis. And um, we were talking during each intermission about why this South African decided to stage a ballet where the pivotal scene is about writing a letter, which is not something you normally dance. And, and I think Kranko has done this wonderfully. Um, but there is a kind of uh, Russian feel to it all. And of course, that's due in no small part to Tchaikovsky. And I absolutely love this work because uh, Kranko and his fantastic composer, who I'm going to talk about on Wednesday, decided that they weren't going to use the opera. And so one of the things that, that happens is that uh, you see Tatiana come out to write that letter. And you know you think in your head, and it doesn't happen. And you have to kind of refocus and uh, look at the choreography, which is um, wonderfully expressive. So it's a very interesting work in that respect. So you mentioned that you really you know, grew up watching uh, the shorter repertory works and, and weren't all that big on narrative ballets until you saw Onyegin and then it was all over. So what, what, what about Onyegin uh, convinced you? Well, I, <clears throat> so I have to say my prejudice, you know, uh, early on were for Balanchine and I lived in New York for a while and uh, used to go there too many times a week. But um, when you grow up the way I did um, with this 20th century um, abstract plotless repertory, uh, to Good Music by Stravinsky, um, we in, in North America were really not part of that whole dialogue that was going on in Europe in, in the second hand, half of the 20th century, where people like Cranko and Macmillan were still making narrative works. And, and it wasn't really part of our tradition. So, um, of course, I knew those works, but the first time I saw Onyegin live, I realized how fantastic and really special it is. Well, I, I was curious about where you think Onyegin or even Kranko's full-length ballets in general fall on the spectrum of narrative ballets. I mean, one of the things you talked about in your lecture yesterday was how much the process of creating a ballet has changed. In the days of Marius Petipa and August Bournonville, uh, the libretto came first, and that was often overwrought and convoluted and nothing you could remotely dance. Um, and, and nowadays, we usually start with the music. So, um, you know, those ballets relied heavily on mime. Um, one of the things that's striking about Onyegin is the clarity and the cleanness of the storytelling, and it's done brilliantly through the movement. So can you just talk a little bit about the, the differences in those narrative styles and, and maybe, you know, how Cranko manages to do this? Um, one of the big problems with narrative ballets in the 20th century is this problem of pantomime. And I mentioned yesterday how the Balanchine-Danilova generation, I talked to Danilova, uh, fortunately, a few times before she died, and she said, ugh, we hated it. 
And they were so intent on getting rid of, of not only the pantomime, but they didn't like the narrative either. They just wanted to dance, right? So um, one of the things that's interesting about the Krenko work is that there isn't any pantomime. And he's able to tell that story, and it's very deft. Um, the, the whole idea of having Onyegin come in as this dark spirit during the letter scene, totally brilliant. And um, you can see his work on Broadway in this work. He really had to figure out, I mean, you can almost see the influence of Jerome Robbins in the way that, that he's figured out how to stage a story and make it work without words. And that's the strange thing about our business is that we're telling stories uh, while we keep our mouths shut. Well, not us, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and one of the you know, interesting things too is that as really non-classical as it is in a way in terms of, in terms of those, those conventions, still it has a vision scene and, and in a way, the mirror, the, the, the mirror um, scene is almost another version of a mirror, of a vision scene. Well, I was thinking last night how thoroughly Cranko knew the 19th century repertory, because the mirror scene is straight out of August Bournonville again. Um, who would, they would do those kind of mirror dances. And when I saw it come down, I said, okay. And then the vision scene, uh, is a wonderful kind of reversal of what we're used to in the 19th century. So again, I, was, um, I hadn't seen this work in a while and I was really uh, excited to see how much Cranko had sort of soaked in. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with dance historian Tim Scholl. So, you know, this ballet is widely done in Europe. Um, it has not been done a whole lot in the United States, but American audiences seem really into it. Um, and one of the, it's just interesting because we don't grow up reading Pushkin. This is not a story that, you know, that we know. And, and you were talking yesterday too about how, you know, we go to the ballet to see the stories we know. We don't want to see the version of Swan Lake where they live happily ever after because we know the one where they don't. Um, so, what, what do you think makes this able, what makes Americans be able to look beyond a story that they don't know at all and love this ballet? Uh, the story is so archetypal. Um, it's, about a, uh, it's about a missed opportunity on the one hand of these people who probably could have loved each other. And the guy was such an egomaniac and uh, uh, Tatiana is the most beloved character of Russian literature, followed uh, very closely, secondly, uh, uh, by the War and Peace, um, Natasha Rostova. Um, but again, if you look at them, they're such archetypes, and they're also so reflective of a time that, uh, we lived through a few years ago for both of us that we may not want to repeat. <laughs> and it's nicer to see them doing it. 
Um, one of the things, too, uh, just pointing out a, a, a difference in, in the Petipus style classics and this one is that, you know, in, in the classics, the ballerina always made this big entrance, usually had a solo that in some way depicted her character. Um, and that was just, you know, standard. But in this ballet, Tatiana is just one of a group of women, and she doesn't really even dance very much in the beginning. And so Cranko sort of just lets it unfold naturally, and, and we come to know who these people are and who Tatiana is um, as that story unfolds. And so there's a level of realism. So I wondered if you could, if you could address that a little bit and how Cranko uses realism in a completely unrealistic form. I mean, it's very interesting because when you look at this work, instead of foregrounding Onegin and Tatiana, we really get introduced to Lensky and Olga. And that's also part of the Pushkin, by the way. They go away later. But I was struck last night about um, the role that Olga plays early on in this work. And I think, again, my colleague uh, who was here with me was sort of surprised too about, uh, doesn't Tatiana begin the ballet on the floor? Uh, <laughs> lots of people lie around in this work, which is okay. Um, so, but it, it is a very interesting way that he lets that realism unfold and that we're sort of pulled into this story with Onegin and Tatiana and there is no grand entrance for her. Um, not at all. So it's a very different kind of way of telling a story. But then there's that fantastic payoff because she has three of the most gorgeous pas de deux in all of ballet lexicon. So there's that. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the idea of honor is central to this ballet. And when uh, Jane Bourne was here staging it um, last season, um, she referred to a line from the Pushkin that Onegin says, which is uh, something to the effect of, if I am without honor, honor does not exist. So I just wondered, is that, a, is that a good translation? Because I was nosing around and finding all kinds of variations on that, some of which sort of changed the meaning a little bit. That's a pretty good translation. And you know, it's, it's a wonderful irony because he is one of the least dishonorable characters in Russian literature when the work starts. But Pushkin wrote that thing for eight years. And if you read the story, and you should, um, uh, when will you ever else read a novel in verse? Um, and you see the, the way that that character is deepened and developed and does believe by the end in this idea of honor. Um, this is sort of not exactly ballet related, but I, I was talking to someone who, who actually was saying, would you call that act one ensemble dance a peasant dance? And so I started thinking about it. We got into a conversation about Tatiana's family's status. And they sort of seem like the semi-nobility, like the same population that Chekhov wrote about about 50 or, 50 or 60 years later, um, sort of this, this bourgeoisie. And I didn't think that if they were semi-nobility, they would you know, socialize with peasants. But so it just led to an interesting um, you know, question in my mind about what what was Russian social structure like uh, in in Pushkin's work or in Pushkin's day um, you know, that's reflected you, here. 
you just reminded me that um, in this work, like all of Chekhov, there are no fathers. Where is Tatiana's dad? Yeah. Um, so uh, that's a really interesting question because when Tchaikovsky starts the ballet, um, the peasants all come and bring fruit so they can make jam. And um, I wrote on the blog for uh, the San Francisco Ballet that uh, one of my favorite observations about the opera is uh, Catherine Clément, the French scholar, who said, this is a ballet about making jam. <laughs> and she's right in that she's tapping into the idea of, of the domesticity Tatiana's mom is kind of married and happy, and she said, oh, I used to wear nice clothes, and I used to read Richardson. And, you know, now I'm here in a peasant cap and having these serfs come. So uh, Pushkin is writing this 20 years before the emancipation of the serfs in Russia, and um, that was very much a part of, of that world. I never thought about the father. Now I'm going to worry about that. Okay. Um, so, so just in, in terms of this narrative ballet, um, looking at the at the overall structure, um, you know, you it, it's just it's full of dramatic moments. And yes, it does all turn on that letter writing scene, but but the drama doesn't end there. Can you talk a little bit just about how Cranko? Um, because this is, this is a compiled score. This is not, you know, a lot of times with full-length ballets, you're working with a score that's, that's there. And, you know, you know that this is the entrance of the three men over here, and this is the ballerina solo. So Cranko had free reign structurally to do what, to tell the story in any way that he chose. Um, any, any thoughts on how he did that? Well, it's really interesting because uh, compared to those 19th century works, it is so loose and in a good way. Obviously, you couldn't really do a ballet in the mid-20th century where, you know, you had ballerinas entrance, divertissement, grand pas de deux, you know, you, that structure seemed really old-fashioned and you couldn't tell the story with pantomime and that's what's so interesting about it for me is that, uh, as I said, it's really deft in the way that it sort of unlocks that structure and finds a way to tell these people's stories without using that kind of rigid Petipoff formula that, that we know and love, right? In Bayadere and Sleeping Beauty and, and you know, but, but it, it, it wasn't really possible. And, and Cranko was one of the few who really figured out how to move beyond that. If you're just coming in, I'm talking with dance historian Tim Scholl. And actually, I'd like to open this up to questions from you. I hope that some of you out there um, have something you'd like to ask. Yes. Um, the question is, uh, to, to get some information on the dancer performing Onegin this afternoon. Um, do you know much about Corey Stearns? He's a guest artist from American Ballet Theater. Um, and I would have to actually like look at some notes or something to tell you too much about him, you know? No, this one is for you. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> 
Anybody else? Yes. How do you see the future of narrative dance? That's a really interesting question. And I think that we are now in a phase where people are sort of looking back at this and thinking, hmm, maybe we should investigate that again. And I have to say, uh, uh, you know, as someone who grew up with this idea that you went to a ballet and there were three works, at least one by Stravinsky, and, uh, you know, that's what you saw, that it has been really interesting to see how Onegin has come back into the international repertory. Um, we like stories. We like to be invested in that. And uh, I don't see plotless works going away, but I think we've now gotten to a place. We're not the pure modernists we used to be. We understand that those two things can coexist. And lucky for you as audiences. Uh, the question is, when and where was this ballet originally staged? And it was made for Stuttgart Ballet. Uh, John Krenko was the artistic director there, and it was 1965. Thank you. I'm, as a historian, I'm always worried about having my date wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the right decade. Yes, let's see. Anybody else? No? Okay. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. The question is, why did Pushkin write in verse for this particular work? Well, that's a, also a really good question. And I have to uh, preface it by saying that one of the great San Francisco stories is written by Vikram Seth. It's called The Golden Gate, and he published it in the late 1980s. Again, I'm hedging on the date. And uh, he was inspired by a translation of Pushkin. So he writes this fantastic story about kind of San Francisco yuppies, if you remember when they were around uh, in the late 1980s, and uses that structure, which is very complicated. If we talk about uh, verse, it's something like A, B, A, B, E, E, F, F. Uh, every stanza has 14 lines, and every one of them sings. And um, uh, I think that he was really interested in the challenge of that. Uh, he always wrote an iambic pentameter, and so here he decides on uh, a four-foot line and makes this incredibly complex kind of verse. Um, but one of the most beautiful in, in Russian literature. Um, so if you don't read the Pushkin, at least go and read Vikram Seth. It's still in print. Uh, the Vikram Seth book is uh, actually the first major thing he wrote. He's become a pretty famous novelist since then. The book is called The Golden Gate. Easy to remember. And if you want to read the Pushkin, one of our principal dancers, Gennady Navigan, recommends you do it in Russian. It's more beautiful. 
Is the English translation also in verse? Well, when I teach um, a literature course, we generally read this because the is issue of translation is so interesting with the Pushkin. So uh, Nabokov made a horrible translation where he refused to rhyme it. Okay, but there are two fantastic ones right now. I can uh, recommend the Johnston, and the best one is now by a guy named uh, James Phelan, spelled F-A-L-E-N, and they're both around. They're both really good. So um, it, it's an interesting issue in that people thought, oh, you could never translate this, and now two people have done it extremely well. So you have a lot to read. The, the, the question was whether um, Dr. Scholl can comment on the contributions of Russian artists who defected and uh, came to the United States to dance and their influence on ballet in general. I'll be talking about that on Tuesday, but I can give you a quick summary, and that is that um, the defectors were incredibly important, and um, particularly Nureyev, and Barishnikov were very interested in bringing Russian repertory to Western audiences. But I'm also going to be talking uh, not only about those Ballet Russe du Quelque Chose groups that toured the US from the 30s to the 50s, um, but also about the ones who were performing in cinemas before movies started in the 20s. And, um, just how many there were. It's an, an incredible uh, number of, of Russians who were here, so much so that by the time of the Russian Revolution, the uh, Marinsky Theater in St. Petersburg had lost half of its dancers. I think we have time for one more. There's one more out there. Anyone? No? Okay, then I have one more. Um, I, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about um, other, other choreographers in Europe who are making full lengths or who, who did make full lengths and, and sort of Krenko's place in that lineup. I mean, you, you've got John Neumeyer right now, um, you know, who's been making, you know, full lengths for years of, of a very different sort. Um, yesterday you were talking about Macmillan. Um, where, where does he fit in? Well, it's interesting. There's been a real generational shift. And I, you know, I would have to say we would probably place uh, Kranko, Macmillan, and Neumeyer in this um, group of European choreographers who were working in a narrative way. And then the other shift happened in the 80s when suddenly you had people like Matthew Bourne who was redoing Swan Lake and Mats Ek in Sweden who was redoing everything and Mark Morris 
who was working in Belgium then and also reworking so many of the narratives. And um, they are much more postmodern and irreverent and they still stick with the music, but they like to play, especially with the libretto. So um, I, I would have to say the next generation is someone you know in San Francisco, and that's Alexei Ratmansky, because he's doing things still in a very ironic way, but um, with a different kind of earnestness, I would say, about the score, the choreography, etc. So I, I remember the first time I saw one of his works, it sort of bowled me over because he's doing something completely different. And I think that he and Christopher Wilden are very much a new generation. Um, and we're, gosh, are we lucky to have them. <laughs> We are out of time. I want to thank you all so much for coming. Please remember the points of view lecture on Wednesday. Visit us at sfballet.org. And please, one more round of applause for our guest. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.